Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. My opinion, my humble opinion, uh, if you're going to be taping a conversation with a colleague, advise them that the conversation is being taped, and then from there there's no secrecy. Okay, so there are a whole lot of liberals with a whole lot of opinions about whether Jody Wilson-Raybould should have recorded that conversation with Michael Wernick, the conversation that we all heard on Friday. What's interesting, though, is that they don't seem to have a lot to say about what we all heard on that recording which I think for all intents and purposes has been a vindication of this story and a vindication uh, of all the concerns that Jody Wilson-Raybould laid out in her testimony before the Commons Justice Committee. That there clearly was all kinds of very overt and political pressure on the Attorney General to intervene in a criminal prosecution. And we have the clerk of the Privy Council as essentially the messenger for the Prime Minister in conveying all of this, that the Prime Minister expects a certain outcome. Why isn't this happening? Maybe it's not surprising that uh, we're not getting a lot of discussion about that side of the story. But it does seem as though perhaps uh, the liberals are setting some kind of uh, the stage here. Maybe this is all uh, a pretext for them to kick Jody Wilson-Raybould out of caucus. Now, going into caucus uh, today, Jody Wilson-Raybould said very briefly, why would I resign? So she's not intending to resign as a liberal MP. But it seems as though maybe things are coming to a head. Joining us for some thoughts on the significance of this audio that we heard on Friday, where this story goes from here. We are pleased to welcome to the program Andrew Coyne, national columnist, Post Media, NationalPost.com. Andrew, thank you for joining us here. Good to be with you. Uh, in your view, how devastating was that on, on Friday to the, to the liberals and to the liberal narrative around this story? Well, it certainly uh, fleshed out and confirmed uh, everything that she had said in her previous testimony. I think there's a particular significance to listening to the audio because you pick up nuances and meaning you would not have got just even from, from the transcript, let alone, let alone from her summary of it. Uh, and it is, I think, to any fair-minded listener, it is absolutely clear uh, that the clerk, albeit he is acting on behest of the prime minister, but he is laying on the heavy lumber on her to get with the program or, you know, quote unquote, we're heading for a collision or I'm worried and all these kinds of, of pretty clear signals that the prime minister was uh, preparing to dump her overboard. And in her last, more or less her last comment on the tape, uh, she basically says, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop, i.e. I'm waiting for the prime minister to, to give me the heave. So, uh, that was certainly significant, and there's a bunch of other stuff in her written submission that, again, fleshes out some of the details. There's some significant conversations, for example, between the Prime Minister's former Principal Secretary, Gerald Butts, his Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, and um, Wilson Raybould's Chief of Staff, Jessica Prince, where it's, again, more clear perhaps than it was before that they really don't either don't understand or don't have a lot of time for the basic concept of the independence of the Attorney General that he or she is not to be pressured uh, on a matter of a, of a particular criminal prosecution. Uh, this seems to have been more or less uh, uh, an annoyance for them rather than an obstacle. In terms of the, the things that are being said about the decision to record that phone call or how the uh, former attorney general comes across on that phone call, I mean, is, is this all a distraction from, from the larger issue here? Oh, yeah. And it's one of many that we've had. I mean, there's been an absolute, you've tried to line up all the different arguments that have been made over the last few weeks. It's an absolute blizzard uh, of deflections and distractions and red herrings and things that have nothing to do with the core issue of 
the, the, the interfering with a criminal prosecution on behalf of a corporation that, by the way, had given uh, tens of thousands of dollars to the Liberal Party over the years, uh, party that uh, a corporation that was in a politically sensitive province for the for the interest, particularly of the Liberal Party. Um, it, it's much easier rather than talk about that and rather than make any effort to try to get to the bottom of these allegations, for the most part, that aren't even really denied anymore. Uh, it's much easier to talk about, oh, what was her motive? She was trying to take down the prime minister. Maybe she wants to be leader. Uh, maybe she's a vindictive woman. You know, some of it I'm, I'm not usually one who throws around the, uh, the term sexist very lightly, but uh, in some of these things it's pretty clear they're trying to appeal to certain stereotypes. Uh, and the most recent one is how dare she uh, uh, tape uh, Wernick. Uh, and obviously in, in most circumstances you would prefer people didn't do that. But to divorce that from the context of several months of mounting pressure uh, to do what she regarded as being an unethical and, and wrong thing to do, where it was pretty clear that people were trying to gaslight her and were, were uh, going to um, make misrepresentations about what she said or didn't say, uh, I think, uh, again, I don't think it, it takes a, a huge amount of common sense to realize that, of course, you would uh, have to take somebody in that circumstance. And if you see the kind of full-court press that's going on now with every liberal MP and every liberal cabinet minister being basically sent out to make one version or another of an attack on her character and, and uh, motivations, uh, no kidding, you'd need that kind of thing. If she, I think if she hadn't taped it, I mean, what we know, we saw Wernick say in, in committee testimony, he basically denied that he threatened her, more or less denied that, uh, or certainly evaded the question about whether he knew that she was um, um, opposed to this and was very uncomfortable with the whole pressure that was being put on her. Um, it would be impossible to maintain that after hearing that tape. What's important about the tape as well, and you know, it gets into the more academic side of all of this, but very clearly Jody Wilson-Raybould understood her role as Attorney General and understood the trap that the Prime Minister and others were walking into. I, I think there were those, Andrew, who still kind of looked through this lens that, well, you know, jobs might have been at stake, government's got to consider those, those things. But, you know, the, the fundamental point in all of this is we have a, a, a very serious criminal case uh, against this company, and it is incredibly inappropriate for any sort of political interference in anything like that. Why is that so difficult to, to, to get across to people? Uh, because they've made very successful efforts to make it turn into a gray area what is, in fact, black and white. I mean, I'm all in favor of being perceiving gray areas, but sometimes issues are black and white. Um, you're absolutely right. Look, the whole criminal justice system, which is an enormous power that we give the state to, to charge people, to arrest them, to try them, to convict them, to throw them in jail... We built in a whole bunch of safeguards within that system to ensure it wouldn't be abused, so that only the police can lay charges, only the prosecutors can decide whether to take court charges to, to, to court. Um, the prosecutors cannot be interfered with by people above them. There's a very narrow exception where the attorney general can issue instructions, a directive to the prosecutor, but she has to put it in writing, and there's all kinds of safeguards. And this was built into the system with a reason, because there have been abuses in the past. Uh, so it's a precious thing that we're trying to preserve here, and we should absolutely be on guard against any attempt to try and um, uh, corrupt that or override that. And what's maybe more distressing even than the original attempt, uh, which seems to have been rebuffed, uh, is this attempt to kind of confuse every, the general public about this, but whether or not this is actually a hard and fast rule or whether there could be exceptions if, you know, you really needed to or 
if, if it wasn't really pressure, if you only pressured her 20 times, or, you know, these kinds of things, attempts to muddy the water. And that's maybe even more objectionable, as I say, than the, than the initial uh, the initial attempt. It's not even a cover-up. It's a it's an attempt to make to say it doesn't really matter, uh, and 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 that really has to be pushed back on. Yeah, it does. I mean, there, there's certainly an argument to be made that that maybe the role of attorney general should be separated from from the role of justice minister, and and even in and of itself, that that kind of conversation is is a bit of a distraction from from what went on here. But I mean, is is that something that that needs to change going forward? I don't know, and there's uh, learned legal minds who have come out on both sides of that question. And generally speaking, obviously, structural solutions are sometimes uh, the way to go rather than relying on good behavior. And we do that a lot in our system of laws and our system of government. We set up separations of powers, including the separation of the attorney general uh, from the rest of cabinet. Um, it's a bit of a distraction in the current context because it's getting away from, I mean, before you can talk about structural solutions, you have to be accountable for the things you've done under the current regime. Mm-hmm. It's odd that the liberals would be bringing that, this up, even as a distraction, because it essentially concedes that something went wrong here. But it makes it sound as if people were just confused about the relative roles of the Attorney General and the Minister of Justice. I don't think they were confused at all. I think they just didn't bother. Uh, and so in that context, it's a bit of a distraction. It's a debate, it seems to me, for another time. I think so. So how do we get to the bottom of this now, then? Well, I think that's the other thing that this whole affair is uh, revealing or reminding us of, is that our instruments of accountability in this country are very weak. Uh, so the prime minister will essentially decide whether the prime minister should be investigated or should have inquiries. Uh, he basically controls the Justice Committee, he controls the Ethics Committee by, by virtue of the majority of liberal members who are uh, always and everywhere answerable to him. Uh, and so it is, if, if they don't want to have call witnesses, it's very hard to force them to do so. Um, and this has been a problem under previous governments, too, under the Harper government, there, where there were ethical issues that came up. It was very hard to hold them to account. Um, that ought to be, I think, a longer-run issue that we really need to address, uh, is when people don't do the right thing, what are our tools uh, for holding them to account? And as I say, compared to some other countries, both in terms of our institutional mechanisms and perhaps in our culture, uh, it's very hard to do so. We don't have a culture where uh, government MPs, for example, are generally willing to stick their necks out and say, you know, I really think this is wrong. And part of that is because every last one of them depends on the prime minister signing their, their nomination papers. Right. And, so, and yeah. Okay. And, I mean, and, and so it's, it's, it's part of the, it, it inhibits us from finding solutions. But of course, that centralization of power in the prime minister's office is precisely part of the problem here, that you get people who are so used to having everything their way, so used to having things to, to crossing lines and crossing boundaries, that, that even as, as serious one as this uh, of, of interfering in a criminal prosecution, I think they genuinely uh, oftentimes just lose sight of where the boundaries are. It seems quite likely at this point that Jody Wilson-Raybould and maybe even Jane Philpott, too, will be kicked out of caucus. And, I mean, that speaks to, to what you were just talking about there, the notion that uh, it's all about the leader. It's all about blind loyalty to the leader. And if you're not a team player, you don't get to be in caucus. I mean, what kind of message would it send to, to kick them out of caucus? Hey, it would certainly send a message that says uh, exactly what you're saying, that, that loyalty to the leadership leader comes first. Uh, that when there are serious allegations of wrongdoing that have been confirmed at every turn and really, as I say, aren't even really denied in the broad strokes, uh, the impulse of these alleged parliamentarians is not to investigate the wrongdoing or the allegations. It's to, to, to punish the people who made the allegations. Uh, 
Um, it is a sad commentary. I think uh, when you watch these individuals, some of whom are otherwise decent people, uh, standing up and performing like this, uh, you sort of see how politics can rot your soul. Um, and it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty disgraceful display, to be honest with you. Yeah, I'd agree. All right, much more at uh, nationalpost.com, including your piece from the weekend uh, on all of this. Uh, Andrew, appreciate it as always. Thanks for making some time for us here. My pleasure, Rob. All right. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.